with you. Let's pray together once more before we uh, come to God's word. Lord God, we need something this evening which no human wisdom can provide. We need something which is beyond any insight which any of us are capable of. We need to know your truth, and we need to meet with you, and we need to be fed by you from your Word. And so we pray that you would come to us now. We look to your hand. As slaves look to their masters, as maids look to their mistresses, we look to your hand. Lord, speak to us, we pray, and be glorified amongst us this evening. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to start by um, quoting from my favorite theologian. So we begin this evening with Charlie Brown of Peanuts. Charlie is having a conversation with Lucy's brother, Linus, who suffers from what Lucy calls pantophobia, which is the fear of everything. And as we join the conversation, Charlie Brown is saying to Linus, I think I understand your fear of libraries, Linus. Library fever is is similar to other mental disturbances. You fear the library rooms because they are strange to you. You are out of place. All of us have certain areas in which we feel out of place. Linus says, Oh, in what area do you feel out of place, Charlie Brown? To which Charlie Brown replies, Earth. Throughout the Bible, or at least from the moment Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, there's a sense of God's people being out of place. The nation of Israel comes into existence by being called out from all the other nations to be separate and different and to stand out. It's one of the things they find the hardest. God is always saying to them, you will not be like all the other nations. And they're always saying things like, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. They want to feel at home here, but they're called to be different. In the New Testament, we come to see, as we come to see even more clearly, not only where we came from in Eden, but where we're going to in heaven, that sense of being out of place, that sense of being not quite at home here, only intensifies. And so, in his first letter, Peter addresses God's people as aliens and strangers in the world, people who, in one sense, don't belong here anymore. Earth makes them feel out of place. Passing through where pilgrims. We're strangers in the world. Now, we know there's a a wrong sense of otherworldliness. There's a kind of an attempt to deny reality, an attempt to avoid seriously grappling with the fact that actually we do live in this world, and we do have to live out our faith in the real ins and outs of this life. But there's also a valid and deeply valuable sense in which we have to remember in the midst of all of that that this isn't where we belong, not if we're Christians. This is the way John Piper puts it. He says the life of faith is the life of an exile, a sojourner, a refugee. Promises of God are our real home, and we have seen them from afar and have greeted them and tasted them, and they have made us restless and uneasy. They have begun to shape our whole way of seeing and thinking and feeling. They have colored all our values and goals and desires. 
We have been put out of sync with this world because our treasure is in heaven. That's what it means to have a consciousness that we're pilgrims passing through. And Psalm 123 is a pilgrim song. It's one of what they call the Psalms of Ascent. It's thought to have been sung by pilgrims, literally by pilgrims, um, those traveling up to Jerusalem for worship. But again, they're pilgrims also in this spiritual sense, people set apart from the world, people whose hearts are directed not by the priorities and thought patterns and assumptions and values of this world, but people whose hearts belong to God and are set on Him. But the thing about not belonging is that it always attracts attention from those who do belong. It seems to be one of the unwritten rules of life from the nursery onwards, hardwired into fallen human nature. People who don't fit in don't get on. People who don't belong stick out like a sore thumb. They're laughed at, ridiculed, mocked, marginalized, and clearly something of that is the experience that lies behind this psalm. The psalmist and the community he speaks for have been ridiculed. Unbelievers have been making a mockery of uh, belief, making a mockery of believers. If I can bring up the first heading there, Callum. Verse 3, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. And that's what prompts this calling out to God. Various of the translations have they put it differently. We have had more than enough of contempt and ridicule. We've had our fill of scorn and contempt. Can't stand it anymore. And as so often happens in the Psalms, all of this comes out in, I think, what is really a very refreshing honesty and straightforwardness as he pours his heart out to God. Speak to this guy in church and ask him how he's doing, and he won't say, oh, fine. He'll say, actually, I've had it up to here, and I can't take it anymore. Have you heard what they're saying? You heard what they're saying about us, about our God? Have you heard what they're saying about our faith? And so all of this comes pouring out to God. Look at their mocking, Lord. Look at them. And it strikes me There's a sense, I think we have to be careful how we put this, but there is a sense in which Christians should be mocked by unbelievers. It's a sense in which that's completely normal, and it would be surprising if it didn't happen. It isn't some kind of uh, masochistic thing. Don't go looking for persecution. Good Scottish Calvinists, never happy until we're miserable. It's not what it's about, but, but Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble said that the world would hate his disciples. Why? Because, John 15, you do not belong to the world. For I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. You don't fit. You don't belong. You've seen the promises of God. You've seen your real and eternal home, and it has colored all your values and goals. You've been put out of sync with this world, and this world hates you for it. The way I read someone putting it recently was like this. The unbeliever considers that there is nothing but the natural world. The natural world, what we see around us, is all that exists. The believer considers that the natural world, the visible world around us, is only a part of reality. And there is an unseen world 
which is every bit as real as what we see around us. And then this writer says this, Christians are called not merely to assent intellectually to the existence of both parts of reality, but also to function practically on that basis. Day by day, they are to make choices that would make no sense unless the unseen world is every bit as real as the seen world. See the significance of that? If we're Christians, if our hearts have been ripped out of the clutches of this world and given over to God and to His priorities, if our eyes have been opened to the realities of faith, then we should be making decisions every day that are sheer nonsense and folly to those who do not believe. That should be normal for us. If an unseen world determines how I conduct my relationships, if an unseen world determines how much profit I expect to make from my business and how I'm, and how I'm willing to make it, if an unseen world determines how I spend my leisure time, then my neighbor, who does not believe in any unseen world, should be bewildered by the way I spend my life. Why would you live like that? Why would you not do this along with everyone else? Why would you not sleep with her until you're married? What are you talking about? Why would you do that? Why would you live in this house when you could live in that house? Why would you give your money to them? But if, on the other hand, my unbelieving neighbor or colleague or family member has no difficulty at all in understanding why I live the way I do and the priorities I have in life, then I have to ask myself how I'm living, whether I'm really living as I'm called to live as a Christian. Am I living as someone who doesn't belong here, who's just passing through and who is fundamentally being shaped by another reality? You see, Jesus always said, He always knew that there is a way to avoid the mockery and ridicule that the psalmist speaks of here. Back to John 15, verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But Christians don't belong to this world, and that means we don't quite fit in, and that means that we should expect to be mocked. And in fact, that happens. We know that happens, at least to some extent. We certainly, as we were thinking in prayer there, as we were giving thanks for in prayer there, we don't face outright persecution, as many do in our world, and we need to keep that in some kind of perspective. But having said that, neither should we underestimate the opposition that we do face or the insidious effect that it can have on us if we're not careful, if we're not alive to it. I don't think that contempt and ridicule are overly strong words for what we do experience at times even in this country. Your own minister, of course, is no stranger to the response that comes when Christian people hold their ground and stand up for truth. Richard Dawkins is probably the most obvious example. I don't know why he comes to mind as I read Psalm 123. He actually uses the word contemptible to describe Christians. His actual um, phrase back in a Daily Telegraph interview in 1996, his actual phrase was ignominious, contemptible, and retarded. I'm sure many of you will have read The God Delusion, in which case you'll no doubt have been interested to discover from this self-proclaimed champion of reason and logic 
that you are, in fact, malevolent, propagandist, mischief-stirring, obscurantist, vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent, barking mad, viciously unpleasant, mendacious, obnoxious, vindictive, deluded, mawkishly nauseating, perniciously delusional, ditzy, unreal, slavish, gullible, fatuous, indoctrinated, brainwashed, fanatical, absolutist, sanctimoniously hypocritical, and cockeyed. the level of debate. These are the descriptions applied indiscriminately in that book to men and women of faith. We have endured much contempt, endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Of course, in one sense, that kind of ridicule is easy to spot, and it's arguable that other things are more harmful when our TV programs and newspapers and magazines and adverts and news reports and novels just take it for granted all the time that, of course, Christian faith is something childish and old-fashioned and outdated and ridiculous. And the TV channels indulge in endless Darwin, endless Darwin love fests, which simply assume that a biblical worldview is nonsense. Christian values are presented as unjust and unloving. Christian people are consistently portrayed in film and on television as strange, weird creatures. And that kind of cultural context is created. There's a danger that our confidence in our faith is slowly eroded. Now, notice what is happening in that. There is no sign anywhere in all, of the, in all that I have said of any rational argument against the Christian faith. It's ridicule, it's mockery, it's contempt. Truth is, there's nothing in that of any devastating argument that proves that the Christian faith is untrue. There's nothing to fear from reason. This is about the creation of a culture in which it's simply assumed that Christian faith is untrue and that we've moved on. And the danger in that is that our confidence in Christ suffers death by a thousand cuts simply worn down by the assumptions of the culture. And then, of course, I guess for some of us, the other possibility is that mockery comes closer to home. Someone at work, someone in your class, someone in your family. And perhaps there are people you can think of, and you can genuinely say that they are bewildered by your priorities in life. They don't understand why you believe what you believe, and that expresses itself in mockery, or at least which I think is every bit as bad, at least in polite bemusement at your quaint, old-fashioned religious beliefs. In the face of all of that, I think the first thing that we need to do is simply to remember that this is nothing new and nothing peculiar to us and nothing that Jesus didn't say would happen. It's the normal experience of God's pilgrim people as they travel through this world on their way home. It's to be expected. And if we know nothing of that, then there is something badly wrong. But of course, recognizing that it's normal doesn't take away the fact that it hurts, that it is difficult sometimes, it's unpleasant, to some degree unnerving. And so the question arises, how do we deal with these kinds of experiences? How do we respond in the face of the mockery of men? Well, how does the psalmist respond? He responds by asking himself a question. Who's in charge here? It's the first, that's what the first two verses of this psalm are all about. Who is in charge? 
in all of this. As unbelievers make a mockery of God's people, the psalmist reminds himself of something fundamentally important by asking that simple question, who's in charge? See, when people mock, when people show contempt, they place themselves above us and they look down. You look down on people who are inferior to you, people who are, um, you know, you assume that you have a greater insight, a greater status, a greater intelligence. So those doing the mocking in verse 4 are the proud and the arrogant, those who have, who have lifted themselves up and look down on God's people. And so the psalmist says, well, who's really in charge? Verse 1, I lift up, I lift up my eyes to you whose throne is in heaven. There's no higher position than that. In the midst of the mockery of men, the psalmist looks to the God who sits enthroned over it all, infinitely greater and infinitely higher than anyone or anything else. We're being mocked. Frankly, we've had it up to here. But we lift our eyes to the one whose throne is in heaven, the God who is completely and incontestably sovereign over all people and all situations and all things. So you can elevate yourself over me all you like, because my eyes are on him. And to illustrate the point, you have that analogy there with slaves and masters, and maids and mistresses. If you read the commentaries, there's lots of discussion about what exactly the point of that analogy is. Is it that slaves look to their master's hands for orders, always ready to obey? Is it that um, they look to their master's hands for food, always dependent on them for their well-being? Is it that they look to their master's hands for protection? I think it's all of these things. I think the point of the analogy is this. The destiny of a slave or of a maidservant was determined in every respect by their master or mistress. No one else could ultimately do a slave or maidservant good or ill because they were completely dependent on their master. If you were a slave, your destiny, your life in every respect lay in the hands of your master. And so you watched those hands. You looked to them for everything. And if those hands signaled grief for you, then no one else could help you. But if those hands signaled good for you, then no one else could hurt you. That's the issue here. Whatever ridicule and contempt may come from others, who actually controls my destiny? Who is it who has the authority to instruct me, the ability to protect me, the resources to provide for me? On whom am I dependent? Proud and the arrogant can mock me all they like because the fact of the matter is that my destiny is controlled by the one to whom I belong, and he is the one whose throne is in heaven. And so even in the midst of mockery, especially in the midst of mockery, I look to him with the intensity of that slave looking to the hand of his master for everything. New Living Translation has, for this verse, has we look to the Lord our God for his mercy, just as servants keep their eyes on their master, as a slave girl watches her mistress for the slightest signal. In the face of opposition and the mockery of men, the psalmist is recognizing who's really in charge, and he's looking to him, focused, content that he controls his destiny. And the wonderful thing is that the one who's really in charge is not only infinitely greater and higher and more powerful than the mockers. He is, who is he? 
the end of verse 2. Our eyes look to the Lord, our God. He is our God. He is Yahweh, our God. He is the Lord. This is the personal covenant name of God. Have mercy on us, Yahweh. This name that speaks of a relationship of unbreakable commitment. This is the God of the covenant, the God who has committed himself to his people forever and promised that he will be their God and they will be his people, come what may. So, in the midst of the mockery of men, the one enthroned in the heavens is on our side. He is on our side. We need to know that. We need to remember it. We need to to remind ourselves that God is in charge of it all. And that's why our great need is to appeal to this God, to appeal to this Jesus for mercy. That's what the psalmist does here three times. He asks God to grant him mercy. Um, The final heading there, um, I I changed it into a verb. Um, Mercy me. That's That's the plea to God. Mercy me, God. Pour out mercy on me. End of verse 2, our eyes look to Yahweh our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Yahweh, have mercy on us. An appeal to God to show grace, to show unmerited love and favor and blessing. Not anything that can be presumed upon, not anything that we are entitled to. It's God's free gift of his favor and his love. So where others place themselves above you, you look higher. You look to the one who is above them. Turn away from those whose approval doesn't ultimately last and doesn't ultimately count, and you turn towards the one whose approval does always last and does always count. Show your mercy to me, Lord. And it's a confident appeal, returning to the God who has committed himself to his people in unbreakable love, and so we do so with confidence. Our eyes look to Yahweh our God till he shows us his mercy. It's not, it's not in case he might. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. It's that appeal to him, simply an appeal that he'll do what he's committed himself to do. It's a confident claiming of his promises and of the protection that he's pledged. He's able to do it because he is sovereign, and we know he will do it because he's given his word. He's promised to be our God and that we will be his people. Whatever mockery will come, God's people will ultimately be helped and vindicated. One of the most useful things to do with the Psalms is always to bear in mind that they, along with all the other Scriptures, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it's always useful to bear in mind that He Himself would have sung these Psalms and to ask ourselves, well, what light does that shed on them? If there was ever one who had reason to sing this psalm, it was Jesus Christ. If there was ever one who was made a mockery, it was Jesus Christ. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff, spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, 
They took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him. The chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him. Those crucified with him heaped insults on him. If ever anyone knew the mockery of men, it was Jesus Christ. This is his song. We have endured much contempt, much ridicule from the proud, contempt from the arrogant. And what did he do? How did he respond? He turned to the one who was in charge, the one who had devised the whole plan of salvation and had promised to vindicate him. And in the face of what appeared to be ultimate rejection and defeat, he fixed his gaze not on the seen world around him, but on the unseen reality that he knew to be true. He lifted up his eyes to the one enthroned in heaven. He recognized that his destiny lay not in the hands of Roman soldiers, not in the hands of chief priests, but in the hands of God. And so he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And of course, he was vindicated as the beloved son of the Father. He was shown favor. He was raised and restored to glory and seated at God's right hand and given the name that is above every name. And all of that, all of that is the reason ultimately why you and I will face mockery and the reason why in the face of that mockery we have hope because we are called to follow him. And following him means following him firstly into rejection and suffering. Because this gospel that he proclaimed is no less offensive to the pride of men than it, than it was 2,000 years ago. It still makes clear that men and women are sinners who, are, who can do nothing to save themselves from the awful consequences of their sin, but are completely dependent on the free grace of God. And so this, this message will attract no less mockery and rejection today than it, than it always has done. As we, as we go out, as we do lunch bars, as we do Christianity Explored courses, as we do mission weeks, there will be, we will have our fair share of those who will look on and they will laugh and they will mock and they will say, how can you possibly believe this nonsense? There will be no shortage of mockery. And we, need to, we need to see that we are following Christ where he went. We need to follow Christ also in his surrender to the Father. Lord, into your hands I commit myself, my life. I hand it over to you, and I trust you. I look to the one who is enthroned in heaven. And of course, the miracle of the gospel is that you and I follow him too into glory. Because of what he has done, we can appeal to God with confidence for mercy and grace. It's words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's the perspective 
That's the focus of the Christian. The mercy of God in Christ has given us a new destiny, a new home, an eternal glory set before us, and that's why we don't quite fit here any longer. Malcolm Muggeridge once said, the only ultimate tragedy in life is to feel at home here. He was absolutely right. It is a tragedy, because in Christ, God has something so much better than this in store for all who will trust and follow Him. Something beside which all the ridicule and contempt in the world fades into light and momentary insignificance. It's a wonderful description in Romans 9 of what God does for us in the gospel. This is the way that Paul puts it. I've always loved this expression. He makes known the riches of His glory to the objects of His mercy makes known the riches of His glory to the objects of His mercy. Actually, He says the vessels, uh, the containers of His mercy. God comes to men and women who have been filled with contempt and ridicule for His sake, and He pours into us His mercy until we overflow with His grace, and we're filled with love and forgiveness and blessing. He makes us vessels of mercy. That is the gospel message of Psalm 123. Through the mockery of men poured out on Christ, the mercy of God is poured out on us. Let's pray together.